Our mission at Cross Point Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's it. We want people to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, live their life for him and, and bring other people, allow, allow God to use them to bring other people to Christ. So we're going to continue. In fact, we're going to conclude our series. Uh, we've been calling this series The Priority of Life, the book of Haggai. Now, maybe you've never even heard a sermon through the book of Haggai. It's in the uh, Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. Uh, he's not a called a minor prophet because what he says is, is a minor message, but it's because it's such a short book. It's right in between the Z, Zephaniah, and Zechariah because it's really easy to skip over Haggai because it's only two chapters in our Bible. So if you brought a Bible with you, open to Haggai chapter 2, uh, verse number 10. We'll be in verse 10 through 23, a sermon I'm calling heart diagnosis. I, I really considered calling this message achy, breaky heart, but I thought heart diagnosis was a little more appropriate for what we're talking about today. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, we're going to start a new series next week. Uh, usually what I do is I pick a book of the Bible, start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through the end. And the book of Revelation has really been on my heart. So next year, I'm going to start in January, the book of Revelation. I've got a small topical sermon series I'm going to start next week. And then that's going to take us right to Christmas. Christmas time, you got to talk about Jesus. That is like a requirement. I do every message if you didn't know that. But we're specifically the birth of Christ. So uh, that should take us through December. And then sometime early January, I'll start the book of Revelation. And it will probably be, Lord willing, I don't know, all of 2023, I'm, I'm guessing, Lord willing, if, if we're still here. But anyways, that's, you're going to hear about that in the book of Revelation. In order to understand the book of Haggai that we're going to finish up today, I really have to back up. Because you have to understand the context of what's happened before if you're going to understand Haggai. Centuries before Haggai, there was a king named Solomon. He was the third king of Israel, and God told him to build a temple for him. And in 957 BC, Solomon built the temple. But after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war. And the nation was really split in two with, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Well, in the north, it was a series of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And really, it wasn't a lot better in the south. Well, in the south, Judah, that's where Jerusalem is. And Jerusalem is where the temple of God is located. And the people of God, they really thought they were something because they're God's chosen people. And so since they're God's chosen people, they, they had this thought. They said, since we're God's chosen people, God will never allow anything bad to happen to us. But God did allow something bad to happen. God allowed the destruction of the temple. And in, in 586 BC, the Babylonians, they came in, they sacked Jerusalem. They took the, the Jewish people away as slaves. And in 536 BC, under the decree of King Darius, the people were allowed to come back. So they've been slaves for 50 years in, in Babylon. And they were, they were slaves for an entire generation. That's like all they knew, that that's where they lived. That's for the entire lifetime, at least a generation worth. But they made the decision to, to move back to the promised land. So they knowingly chose to walk 1,678 miles across what is modern-day Iraq and modern-day Jordan back to the promised land. I have to think it looks something like grapes of wrath, if you remember that from your history books of what that might have looked like, because they were poor. They had no money. And, and, and so they chose to walk all that way, and they get back to the land that's been laying in ruins for 50 years. And immediately, they get back in the land, and they start rebuilding the temple. And so we're off to a great start. 
They, they, they laid the foundation of the temple. And that's, again, we're off to a great start. They make, started making sacrifices on the altar. Again, great st- start, but then they stopped. They stopped because things got harder than really they thought they were going to be. And that's Haggai chapter 1. And so they stopped working. And for 14 years, there was no work done on the temple. And what happened was used to life with no temple. But that's when God sends a prophet, Haggai, to tell the leaders to rebuild the temple. And Haggai preached, and the people listened, which is incredible because usually that's not what happens. Usually God sends a prophet, the prophet preaches, and at best, the prophet's ignored. More often, the prophet's killed for doing exactly what God has called him to do. It's a lot like being a pastor, but I'm bumped. But anyways, <laughs> they, 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 they heard Haggai, and they listened, they responded, and they started to rebuild the temple. But then there was a second problem. And the second problem is the people got stuck daydreaming about the past. They longed for the good old days when Solomon had the temple and the temple had tons of gold and silver. And they never thought they'd be able to build a temple as amazing as Solomon did. They really started to whine. And so eventually God tells them, says, hey, be strong, work hard, and trust me. It's weird that God has to remind his people to do that. But since they needed that, so God reminded them to be strong, to work hard, and to trust him. And they started working. But now there's a third problem. We come to the middle of chapter 2, and there's another problem. The problem really has everything to do with the people's hearts. We're about to find out that the people agreed to be strong. They agreed to work hard, but they still wanted to live like the devil. They wanted to come to church. They wanted to build a great church for God, but then go back and live like, like they had zero consideration for God. That's a problem, right? God wants to bless his people, and the people want God's blessing, but it's like they want God's blessing and the devil's blessing at the same time. And that just doesn't work. God will bless his people, but they're trying to hold hands with God and trying to hold hands with the devil at the exact same time. So can you see how that doesn't work? So God sends Haggai again, and he's going to tell his people something. And the people need to know that what they're doing is wrong. They have to diagnose the problem. You ever heard that uh, in order to do something, you have to, you have to know uh, that knowing is half the battle? If I didn't learn anything from Saturday morning cartoons I've grown up, that's why I learned that knowing is half the battle. Well, the people have to know there's a problem. In order for them to know there's a problem, Haggai uses a little illustration to kind of paint the picture of what's wrong with them. So if you would, pick up your Bibles. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. So he's got a question about the law. That's the law of Moses. If someone carries holy meat in the folds of his garments and touches the, his fold uh, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of, of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. This brings me to my first point this morning, point number one. If your heart's not right, nothing else matters. 
Did you catch that? If your heart's not right, nothing else mattered. That's what Haggai's trying to get across to the people. And so Haggai's illustration really begins with this question. And this is a hypothetical question. The, quest, the question Haggai asks, he says, hey, let's say there's this priest. And this priest is carrying consecrated meat. That's holy meat or the, whole, the meat that's offered in the temple. And he's carrying the fold of his garment. He's walking around. And let's say that, that holy meat touches some other meat that's not holy. Does the unholy meat magically become holy? I'll ask the question like this. This is the new Pastor John translation. Does meat offered on the altar make other meat holy through osmosis? Right? That's what he's asking. And the priest answered and says, no. I have to think the priest is thinking, that's crazy. Okay, holy meat doesn't, doesn't make unholy meat um, magical or unholy just by, by touching or through osmosis. And I think Haggai's thinking, oh, good. I'm glad we're on the same wavelength here. Because let me ask you a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is, if a person, uh, if, if they are defiled, if they're unholy because they touched a dead body, and then they go and they touch food or something else, does the food become unholy? It's a good question, right? He's asking if somebody, for example, a priest, because he's asking this to the priest, if they touch a dead body and they touch food, does it become unclean? And their answer is yes. You see, the law taught that if someone touches something that's unclean, and then they, 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 they touch something else, that uncleanness is transferred to that food or to the, that other item. And so what God's law is trying to teach us is defilement and uncleanness is transferable. To all the people in the room that have been Christians a long time, have you ever read what the law of Moses says about touching dead things and it becoming unclean? Have you ever read that and go, Why? Well, the answer to that question is the principle that God is trying to teach the people through Haggai. Haggai wants the people to know a very important principle. Read again in Haggai chapter 2, verse 14. It says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. You see, here's the problem from God's point of view. The people are living like the devil and they're expecting God to bless them as if he doesn't know what they're doing. This is the omniscient creator, sovereign God of the universe. And they're acting like he doesn't know how they're living. And this seems kind of shocking. You were thinking like, why is, why are the people defiled? How could God say that everything the people touch is defiled? How is it that everything that they're doing is defiled? What's so wrong? That's what we're wondering. But before we consider God's answer, I think we have to consider this very important spiritual truth. God says that every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now, please don't misread this and think that what the people are doing isn't something that we would consider good. Because they're rebuilding the temple, right? That's like a lot of work. We would consider that to be good. It's been laying in ruins for now a grand total of 64 years. And so they're working for God. That's a good thing. But what the people are doing, they're working for God and they still want to live in sin. You see, what they want to do, they want to to sin all they want, but then they want to balance that out with good works. They want to sin all they want and then make up for their sin with doing good works. That is the principle and ideas for every single workspace religion that's ever happened. Does this sound familiar to us? 
That, that we can offset our bad works by good works. But consider this. This is God's chosen people. It's the people of God that are thinking this way. That think they can offset their sin by doing something good. God is saying that the work they're doing is unclean. Why? Because they're unclean. There's nothing wrong with the work they're doing. The work they're doing is good. The problem lies with the people's hearts. You see, it's God's people that are unclean. And so that makes the finished result of everything they touch unclean. When I was very little, we used to raise pigs for 4-H. It was my job every day to get up in the morning before I go to school and go out and clean the pig pen. Don't know why my sister never had to do it. There were her pigs too, but for some reason it's my job to get up and clean the pig pens. I guess I should have learned to complain more. But anyways, um, it was my job to get up and, and go out there and do that. Well, I learned very on that there had to be an order. I had to uh, go, I had to go out there, clean the pig pen, and then come back and shower and then go to school. Because if I did it out of order, I was going to smell like a pig. There was the first day that I got up, I showered, I went outside, cleaned the pig pen, and then went to school. And everybody in school is like, you kind of stink. So I learned, you know, even if I put my muck boots on and I tiptoed through the, through the pen and made sure not to step on anything, I was still going to smell like a pig no matter how hard I tried. Okay? What do you think would happen? Just for example, this never did happen. Let's pretend. What do you think would have happened if I would have walked through my mom's living room wearing those muck boots? I might have been bleeding. That's what might have happened. But <laughs> I never did happen because those boots get left outside, right? Because if I would have gone tracement through my mom's living room wearing those muck boots, I would have defiled the entire house. And the entire house would have smelled like a pig pen. What if I tried to do something good I was wearing those boots. Let's say I was going to do something nice for my mom and I'm going to mop the kitchen floor. Only I'm wearing those same muck boots. What's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing good is going to come of that because I'm just spinning my wheels. Everything that I touch is defiled. What I must do, I have to take those boots off outside. I have to get cleaned up and then I can mop the floor. So how does this apply to us? We can come to church. That's a good thing, right? We can sing worship songs. That's a good thing. We can tie to the church. That's a good thing. We can serve in children's ministry. That's a good thing. We can bring these Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. That's a good thing, right? But if our heart's defiled, it's all for nothing. What do I mean? What I mean is there's no real impact for the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about works-based salvation here. You can go into heaven when you die, But if you're living your life like the devil, then all your work for the Lord is defiled. You can't be holding resentment in your heart and expect to God that he will will bless your ministry somehow. You can't be gossiping about somebody on Saturday and then come to church on Sunday expecting somebody to get saved. It doesn't work like that because everything that you touch is unclean. There was a very prominent pastor that was caught in gross immorality year or two ago. I mean, like he would never be in ministry again. About a decade ago, he said, before his sin was uncovered, he said this, quote, we have no right, we have no power in prayer if we have no righteousness in life. What he said is deeply true. I just wish he would have applied those words to his own life. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we, we always ask you to examine your own heart. I can't examine your heart. 
That's way above my pay grade. You have to examine your heart. And if there's an instance, if your heart's not right, then please don't partake of the Lord's Supper. Just let it pass. But if your heart is right, then go ahead and take it. You see, what's going on here is we do not grasp the polluting power of sin. When there's sin in our life, nothing is going to work out for the glory of God, no matter how much we say we want it to. You see, what I think happens is we become nose blind to the polluting power of sin. Think back to my pig pen illustration, okay? You know, I don't know if you've ever been around pigs, but when you first walk up to a pig pen, the smell is nearly overpowering. I mean, that smell like hits you in your face. You're like, holy smokes, this is horrible. But you know what happens over time? You get used to it. You get used to it over time, and then that smell just doesn't smell so bad after you've been around the pigs for a while. So it is with sin. The longer you're around it, the more you become nose blind to the sin in your life. The only cure for being nose blind to sin is to get away from it, like total abstinence. And then you'll be able to recognize that, 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 that sin anytime you're near it. We must remove ourselves from sin because if we don't, everything we do, even the good things, become defiled. I mean, we want our life to count, right? We call ourselves follower of Jesus Christ in the days that God gives us on this earth. We want our life to count for the glory of God. But when we're living with repetitive, unrepentant sin, God's never going to, to bless us until we repent and we, we turn from that sin. But often we don't understand the polluting power of sin. Okay, God is trying to teach his people through, through the clean and unclean laws the polluting power of sin. Because our uncleanness only leads to more uncleanness. So God is teaching his people that everything they touch becomes unclean. It doesn't become clean. Rather, unclean things makes unclean or clean things unclean. That's easy for me to say hard for you, right? The polluting power of sin is so powerful. And usually we fail to see how powerful it is. How many times in your life or somebody you know, you just see that sinful actions lead to more sinful actions? Sinfulness doesn't lead to holiness. Sinfulness leads to more sinfulness. Think about how this works in relationships. How often are relationships destroyed because of sin? It doesn't, the relationship doesn't become holy, becomes unholy because of sin. It's the polluting power of sin that does that. It's like taking a rock and and throwing it into a pond. What happens is that rock hits and the ripples go on far beyond your eyes can see. Because what happens is someone does something sinful to somebody and then they do something sinful back. And then that first person retaliates to the second person and on and on it goes. And there's this defiling process of of sin in our lives. And we can't clean ourselves up. Everything we touch leads to more defilement, more uncleanness. You know, in our society, we think, well, it's not that bad, right? It's it's not a big deal. We can live how we want. And then God's just going to overlook our sin, right? Look in Haggai chapter 2, verse 15. Now then... Consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there was but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty measures, there was but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two. If your heart's not right, nothing's going to work out. Okay, God has said everything his people's touch is defiled. Why? Because they're living sinful lives. They're trying to live for God and they're trying to live for devil at the same time. They've got one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. It doesn't work. God's wanting to his people to see what they're doing. In verse 16, God says, he's the one that turned off their prosperity, financially speaking. In verse 17, God says that he struck all their products with blight and mildew and hail. But then look in verse 17. He says, yet you did not return to me. What God is saying, hey, these hard times that you're falling on, they're caused by me. On a side note, how could you not see, how can we not see ourselves in the people of Haggai today? God is saying your life is difficult and I'm the one who's doing it. I'm the one that's making your life difficult because everything you touch turns to garbage and I'm the one that did it. Where you think, well, what's missing? What is so wrong? Well, God states twice in this, this part we just read. Look at verse 15. He says, now then consider. Then jump down to verse 18. He says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. They yielded nothing. They got nothing from their, from, their, from their work. But then God says, but from this day on, I will bless you. Why were the people defiled? Here's why the people were defiled. Because they didn't have a temple. All their works, all their sacrifices, all their, their, their good works were useless without a temple. And this is what God is trying to show them by making their, their life void of prosperity for 14 years. God's trying to show them, you're missing the most important thing. They're missing the most important thing. And the most important thing was the temple. Why do I say that? The most important thing was the temple because the temple represented the very presence of God. So without the temple, everything's in vain. Until the temple became the priority of life, until the temple was built, God's not going to bless them. The temple, or lack thereof of a temple, is proof positive of the condition of the people's hearts. They needed to make the temple of God the priority of their life. That's the only way that God would turn these cursings into a blessings. The people needed to see that they needed the temple to go forward. So for 14 years, they didn't understand this truth. So God made their life difficult. That's why he says, consider your ways. But for 14 years, they missed the fact that God is the one that is making life tough. What they needed was to see they need the very temple of God. Now today... We don't go to a temple. Believers do not go to a temple. You know why? Because believers are the temple. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are the temple of God. 
Read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, it says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the, the message that, that Paul was trying to get to the Ephesians church is the same point that God's trying to get to the people through Haggai. Without a temple, everything you touch is defiled. You need a temple. Without God's temple, nothing can be clean. Nothing can be holy. I'll say it like this. You can't have it both ways. You can't live like you are the temple of God and then live like you aren't the temple of God and expect life's going to work out. You can't go to church and sing praises to God and leave and live like there is no God and expect everything in life's going to be amazing. Now, now hear me on this. I'm trying to be sensitive, biblical, and not legalistic here all at the same time. But can you see how this could be a very pro-legalism message real quick? I'm not preaching pro-legalism here because there are some things that are very legalistic, but then not everything is legalism. Let me just use this example. I'm going to be black and white. I'm going to use myself as the example. I'm a married man. God expects me to be faithful to my wife. So I cannot go and be unfaithful to my wife and then go, oh, bless me, God. I just love you so much. That doesn't work out. Now, I could go on for the next 30 minutes telling you different black and white issues. Just go ahead and enter in whatever black and white issue you're thinking of. So now remember, believers don't have a temple we go to. We are the temple of the living God. So my goal as a believer, your goal as a believer, one, is to glorify God with your life. And two, to become more like Jesus. Okay? That's my goal. That's your goal. We have the same goal. So here's the question. How are you doing on your goals? Are you glorifying God with your life? And are you becoming more like Jesus? I know we all want to say yes, but let me ask you a couple more questions. It's going to try to spread some light on that and shed some light, see if the, if the answer really is yes. But let me preface these questions with a statement. My job as a preacher is not to make you feel better. There's a lot of people that say they judge whether a preacher makes them feel good, or excuse me, if he's a good preacher or a bad preacher, whether that preacher, preacher made them feel good or feel bad. If that's your barometer to how you judge a preacher, I hope I'm a very bad preacher. Okay? My job is not to make you feel good. My job is to preach truth. Also, as Baptists, we're very quick to call it a preacher that's not preaching uh, the Bible, if they're preaching something other than God's words. And I think we should call them out. But I can't tell you how many times I had somebody stop me after church and say, Pastor, what you said really hurt my feelings when I'm clearly preaching God's word. I'm not talking about differences, opinions of, of B or C doctrine. I'm talking black and white issues. So if what I'm about to say, if this upsets you, don't come to me and say you've been offended. Instead, do something about it. Okay? I'm I'm prefacing this because this is about to be one of those instances. If you're upset by what I'm about to say, then do something about it rather than be upset. Everybody got their big boy pants on? Are we all agreeing here? I know you're about to blow your hair back. Okay, here we go. Here's question number one. This one's not that offensive. Question number one. How many years have you been a Christian? How long? Think back to the day. When, when was it? When was the day that Jesus, when you got saved by God, you came to know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? What was the date? I know some of you probably don't remember. You're like, I was seven or eight. That happens for some of you. Okay, remember, you're about seven or eight. Now do the math. I'm so old, it's simple subtraction. How long have you been a Christian? 
For me, it's 19 years. I was 29 when it happened, so I remember the date. Okay, Are we all on the same page? That's question number one. Here's question number two. During those years of being a Christian, how different are you today than you were on the day of your salvation? Are you completely unrecognizable from how you used to operate? Because there's this process called sanctification. And this is this process where we submit to God and we allow him to change us from the inside out. To where we begin to think and act and talk more like Jesus and a lot less like we, how we used to. So how are you doing? Are you more like Jesus today or are you pretty much the same guy or gal? And I want to say, when you really start to mature, all you can see is how far you have to go. Yeah, God's changed me this much, but like he is so perfect and so holy and so honorable, and I am still not. That's how you know when you're really beginning to change. And here's question number three. During the time between the moment of your salvation and now, how many people has God brought to a saving knowledge of his one and only son, Jesus, and he did it through you? How many people has God saved? God did it all, but he used the influence of your life. Now, there's a part of the Bible where the the writer says, you know, some plant, some water, some reap, but we all play a part. So I'm not asking how many people did you you lead through a sinner's prayer. Now, I'm asking how many people did the influence of your life point to Jesus? How many? Those are two very real questions that because our goal as a Christian, my goal as a Christian, your goal as a Christian is really measured by those two things. And those two things are God's glory and becoming like Jesus. Those two measuring sticks, we can see if we're doing our part to allowing God to change us into the temple of God. No legalism here, okay? I'm not talking about don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, none of those silly things that we sometimes like to point to. I'm not talking about that. I'm asking the very hard-hitting questions. How many people know Jesus because of you? How many people were going to hell, but there will come a day in the future where you're walking on the streets of glory, and it's not you. God did it, but God used you to make it happen. How many people? And then how much more like Jesus do you look like today compared to the day you got saved? I can't answer those questions for you. Only you can answer those questions. And if your answer is, well, nobody really knows Jesus because of my life then I have to ask, are you allowing God to use you as the temple of God? And if you're pretty much the same guy, the same gal as the day you got saved, are you allowing God to change you, to mold you into the temple of God? You see, I think us Baptists, we like to measure our spiritual life in other ways. How many Bible studies we've attended in our lifetime? How many days a week are we in the church? How much scripture we can, we can spout off at the top of our heads? How much money we give to the church? Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are all very good things. Please don't stop doing those two things. But if you're ignoring the two questions that I ask and you're substituting something else, then I think we're missing the mark by substituting something that we can control in our life rather than submitting ourselves to God. I think we Baptists, we like to say we like the hard-hitting sermons until we're the ones hit by the hard-hitting sermons. God wants us to look at our life through his eyes. God wants us to know that there's a lost and dying world that's going to hell if they don't know him. And God wants the whole world to know him. And do you know how God wants the whole world to know him? Through the temple. Through the temple of the living God. And today, believers are the temple of God. 
So your primary goal as a Christian is to allow God to use you to lead people to him and then allow him to change you, to mold you into the image of Jesus. We call that discipleship. And let me tell you, usually that discipleship, it's rarely pleasant. Usually it's pretty painful. But that's the goal in life as a Christian. Let's finish up this book together. I'll make one point and we're going to close this service. Read Haggai chapter 2 verse 20. It says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's my third point this morning. Point number three. Get your heart right and be blessed. The whole book of Haggai is a message to the people through Haggai, and it's really to the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. In verse 19, he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. And you're like, well, how's, how's God going to bless us from that day? What's going to happen? Well, in verse 21, he says he's about to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. God says he's going to overthrow thrones and kingdoms. And he says he's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. I'll say it like this. God's about to turn the world upside down. That's what he just said. This language should have been very familiar to the people of Haggai because this is language that is similar to when God pulled the people out of Egypt. They, 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 God split the Red Sea. They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and then God released the Red Sea and kills Pharaoh's army. Do you remember all that? That, that all the people, the God's people, they lived and the enemies perished. But what God's talking about here is so much bigger than what happened at the Red Sea. In verse 23, he says he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring because God's chosen him. You're thinking, what does that mean? That Zerubbabel is going to be a signet ring. Well, a signet ring was a ring that was worn by a king and that king would press that into wax. That was kind of like his, his, his calling card. Or you said that you could look at that and say, that's from, from this guy that, that you knew something was going to happen. It's proof positive to the people that something's going to happen. Well, God said, Zerubbabel is going to be like a signet ring. And you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with me? Well, if you've been a Christian a while, I bet you've read the name of Zerubbabel before. You might not remember this, but Zerubbabel is mentioned in in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 records for us Jesus' family lineage. The New Testament tells us that Zerubbabel is the 10th great grandfather of Jesus Christ. So kind of important, right? Haggai tells Zerubbabel God's going to make him God's signet ring. Zerubbabel is going to be proof positive that God is about to do something huge. And I have to think this was a huge encouragement to Zerubbabel because at this moment, he probably felt, felt like a total failure. He's supposed to leading the people. He's supposed to be pointing the people to God, yet the people aren't worshiping God. So I have to believe he felt like a failure. The temple hadn't been rebuilt, and it's his job to point the people to rebuild the temple. But what God is telling Zerubbabel, he's saying, hey, buddy, I'm not done with you yet. 
We know something huge is going to happen, and it's going to happen through Zerubbabel. We now know it's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus comes through Zerubbabel. You know, if you read your Old Testament, salvation's history progressed from person to person to person. It's always moving forward with this promise of this coming Savior, this messianic promise that there's coming a Savior that's going to save all of mankind. And many people played these different roles, and every one of them is important. Like for Abraham, he founded what's the nation. It was really started with a family. And then from Isaac and Jacob, they built on what Abraham did. And then Joseph protected the the people in Egypt. And then Moses redeemed the people out of Egypt. And then Joshua gives the promised inheritance. Then David established, King David, he established the kingdom. And in spite of sin, in spite of suffering, in spite of failures, the Davidic line never ceased. Satan tried to stop it all along the way, but he couldn't stop it. And there came a day when Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. He was born in Bethlehem. You know, when Christmas comes, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We absolutely should. We celebrate the baby. We we also celebrate Mary. We celebrate Joseph. We celebrate the Magi. We celebrate the shepherds. So many aspects of, of Christmas we celebrate. But how come we don't remember Zerubbabel? God's signet ring, the 10th great-grandfather of Jesus, because we should, because it's through Zerubbabel that God would robe himself in human flesh and come as the savior of all mankind. God said he's going to bless the world. How did God bless the world? Through Jesus, because Jesus came to save us from our sins. Our only hope, our only help is in Jesus. God's saying that he wants to bless the people. Now hear me on this though. I'm not saying that if you're obedient, your life is going to be easier. There's some aspects that's true, but that message gets messed up really quick. God's saying, if you want a blessing from me, then come to me and I'll give you the greatest blessing you could ever possibly imagine. The greatest blessing of God comes through his presence. How did God make his presence? No, he did it through Jesus Christ that came and died on the cross in our place for our sins. God very clearly says in this book that he's getting ready to shake the nations. He's getting ready to throw, overthrow governments. If you're seeing our world today, how could you not see ourselves in the book of Haggai? And all of this is going to culminate with the return of Jesus Christ. Did you know Jesus is coming back? I think it's going to happen very soon. And when that happens, it's too late for anybody that doesn't belong to him. The greatest blessing you could ever know is to know God. And you can only know God through his son, Jesus. You must recognize your sin. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's not doing a bunch of good works that offset your sin. That never works. We can never, we can never make for our sin because everything we touch is defiled. We need God to come and die for us in our place. If you've never called on the name of Jesus, I had to beg you to do that now. Because there must come this moment where you have this moment of clarity where you recognize you're a sinner, turn and turn to the Savior. And for most, it happens through a prayer. Saying, dear God, I'm a sinner, but you love me so much, you came and you died in my place. I give you my life. Save me from my sin, and I pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.